0: X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Thursday, April 29th. Volunteers all over this community are coming together at X-Ray to keep the record spinning and the latest news rolling. We bring you what you need, when you need it. We rely on your support to keep bringing you the content you love. No one has to give to community radio. But the cool thing is, people do. People like you. Please chip into the station that's made up of folks just like you and join the community at X-Ray at xray.fm slash donate, or give us a call at 503-233-X-Ray. That's 503-233-9729. X-Ray. Today, back in the day on April 29th, 1989, The Africa Savannah exhibit opened at the Oregon Zoo. It encompasses four acres and includes animals typical of East Africa. Monkeys, giraffes, tortoises, and lizards, among many others, could all be seen for the first time in Portland. The exhibit also includes a large glass-enclosed aviary, which visitors can walk through and see colorful African birds playing in the trees. And since its initial installation over 30 years ago, the Oregon Zoo's African savanna has grown even larger. As of 2009, it includes an exhibit called Predators of the Serengeti. Here, visitors can see some of the most notorious creatures native to the continent, such as lions and cheetos. But they were sure to include smaller animals like sloths, lemurs, and geckos too. Though a lot has changed since 1989, including the name of the zoo itself, folks can still come and visit these incredible creatures and many more today. Today, back in the day on April 29, 1945, the Dachau concentration camp was liberated. It was the first concentration camp established by the Nazis in World War II, and remained in operation for over 12 years. In that time, 32,000 deaths were documented, However, thousands more were not. Dachau was the longest-running concentration camp, first opened in March of 1933 and spanning nearly all of the Nazi regime. In that time, an estimated 200,000 prisoners from more than 30 countries passed through its walls. Roughly one-third of those prisoners were Jewish. At the time of liberation, the death rate at Dachau had reached 200 people per day. Upon liberation, the Dachau facility was repurposed and remained in use until 1960. Today, thanks to the efforts of former prisoners, Dachau serves as a memorial to the thousands of lives lost within its walls. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Michelle Nyhaus about her new book on the history of conservation. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregon Senate Republicans used delay tactics to protest COVID restrictions again. On Tuesday, Governor Kate Brown announced renewed restrictions for 15 Oregon counties in response to the rising spread of COVID-19. Senate Republicans yesterday pushed to require bills to be read in full before final passage. This is a delay tactic they have already employed during this legislative session. A press release from the Senate Republican Caucus stated that the constitutional requirement the legislation be read in its entirety was an important tool towards bipartisan collaboration. The statement also said, quote, Senate Republicans stand ready to work with Democrats to reform the governor's unchecked powers. House Republican Leader Christine Drazen said the restrictions were unnecessary and critiqued the efficacy of the governor's vaccine distribution plan. Senate Republican Leader Fred Gerard said in a statement, quote, we are not obligated to let the governor railroad Oregonians without accountability and transparency. And now your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 740 new coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total number of cases in the state to 182,040. There were two new deaths. The death toll is now up to 2,488. As of Wednesday, 43.3% of Oregonians have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. 29.5% of Oregonians are fully vaccinated. Governor Kate Brown shutters indoor dining in Portland again. In response to Oregon's fourth wave of surging COVID cases, Brown announced new rules that shift 15 Oregon counties back into the extreme risk category for pandemic transmission. As a result, Multnomah, Clackamas, Columbia, and 12 other counties will be once again limited to outdoor-only dining at restaurants. However, the maximum capacity for outdoor dining has been raised from 50 to 100 patrons. Brown also announced $20 million in funding to support businesses affected by the closure and extreme risk counties. Additionally, she announced that risk levels in the affected counties will be reassessed on a weekly basis rather than biweekly, as was previously the case. Indoor dining in Portland and neighboring counties last reopened on February 12th. The new restrictions take effect tomorrow, April 30th. The Portland Business Alliance has been found to have violated city lobbying rules 25 times. The City Auditor's Office has been conducting an investigation of the Portland Business Alliance to review possible undisclosed lobbying efforts. They informed the group on Monday that they have discovered a slew of violations. The violations include underreporting of correspondence spent on lobbying efforts. They failed to fill out reports detailing all contacts the Alliance had with city officials. This is a requirement for any group that spends more than $1,000 or eight hours on City Hall lobbying efforts during a three-month period. A fine of up to $3,000 could be issued for each individual violation. This means the Alliance could have owed up to $75,000 in fines. However, The auditor's office only fined them $450 in total and recommended training for the alliance staff. According to the city's election officer, the auditor's office has only ever issued one other fine for lobbying violations. It is a $2,000 fine issued to Uber in 2016. The Portland Business Alliance is a powerful local trade group, regularly lobbying for business interests at City Hall. Oregon is going to get another U.S. House seat. On Monday, data from the U.S. Census was released showing a 10% population increase in Oregon over the past decade. The state's population now exceeds 4.2 million people. That means that for the first time in 40 years, Oregon can add an additional congressional district. It's unclear if the addition of a sixth seat for Oregon will benefit one political party in particular. Democrats hold all but one of the current congressional seats. Some local officials have expressed concerns that, as districts are redrawn, gerrymandering could create more competitive districts that disadvantage Republican representation. Community-level census data will not be released until the late summer. The legislature has until September 27th to complete the redistricting process. According to a new study, Portland protesters who were exposed to tear gas last summer are now experiencing widespread menstrual irregularities. Researchers at Portland's Kaiser Permanente Center for Health Research have published what is purported to be the nation's first peer-reviewed study of the effects of tear gas exposure and premenstrual syndrome. The study surveyed 2,257 adults who were exposed to tear gas during demonstrations in Portland between July 30th and August 20th, 2020. The vast majority of respondents who could potentially menstruate reported irregular periods following exposure to tear gas either at protests or in their homes. Of the 54.5% of respondents who could menstruate, 36.6% reported increased menstrual cramping. reported unusual spotting, 23.6% reported increased bleeding, 18.9% reported more days of bleeding than expected. Other impacts of exposure to the gas included tenderness of the breasts, increased blood clots, blood color change, or the absence of bleeding altogether. The report fuels a push for further research on the subject, acknowledging that self-selected participants who attended the protests are a poorly defined control group. Some good news, starting next week, Oregonians will be able to renew their driver's license online. Starting on May 5th, residents of our fine state will be able to renew driver's licenses via the internet, and have their new license sent to their home within 10 days. This change will clear a major roadblock for Oregonians who have been waiting weeks or months to renew. In many cases since the pandemic began, Oregonians were forced to travel hours to the nearest DMV with available appointments for testing and renewal. Additionally, both chambers of the Oregon legislature have approved a bill to extend the moratorium protecting drivers with expired licenses and vehicle registration from getting a ticket for these infractions. The federal government also announced on Tuesday that it would extend the deadline for states to comply with the REAL ID program until May 2023. And that's today's quick six local rundown. X-ray. Up next, Christine Alexander speaks with Michelle Nyhaus about her new book on the history of conservation. Here are Michelle and Christine.
1: I'm Christine Alexander and joining us now science journalist Michelle Nyhaus. She's written for High Country News, The Atlantic, National Geographic, The Smithsonian, and more. She's got a new book out, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, Tracing the History of Conservation and How It's Changed Over the Years. So, Michelle, your book, Beloved Beasts, what sparked your interest in this subject? I I know you're a science journalist and you've uh, covered lots of stories for lots of fantastic publications what what made you want to write this book well i after i
2: graduated from college i went to reed college in portland and uh in in the 90s the age of the neat the, the meat puppets and i uh i be i have made a living for a few years as a wildlife biologist i worked on all kinds of weird projects around this desert southwest and that uh, put me right in the middle of a lot of really uh, passionate and even violent conflicts over an in- endangered species. And I wanted to know how people in the past had started to resolve these big questions about who whose responsibility it was to protect species, how we did it, why we were doing it. And over the years, I I got more and more interested in conservation history. And it turns out there's this whole fascinating, complicated story about, very different people who had very different motivations, um, who all were interested in
1: protecting other species um, and and making sure they survived on the planet with us. I want to ask you about that, because that brings me to I I was um, raised in the southwest, Tucson for the most part. And I remember back then, um, we mentioned the 90s, the big fight was over the spotted owl. And the the there was a squirrel I believe too that was under attack. But but anyway, that's right. Yeah, and that's right. On and, Mount Graham. On Mount yeah. Graham. Yes, thank you. And I remember I've um, always thought of myself as an environmentalist and as a conservationist, but there was a very very heated um, debate going back and forth between sort of the stewards of the land, the the ranchers and the farmers. And those who wanted to protect these endangered species, and you talk about it in the book, you know the the conflict between economics and conservation. And I saw it firsthand down there. I worked in the movie business, and we shot on location at Sharp's Ranch and Pat- uh, outside Patagonia. Um, and I remember it was a big thing for them. They they were they were staunch environmentalists, and yet they were cattle people, and mm-hmm. they felt they were the best people to be stewards of the land and protected. And yet, in recent years, they had to move off of it, and it's become a national park. Their their ancestral home there. So, can you talk a little bit about um, conservation, the conflict between economics and conservation? Yeah,
2: I yeah definitely. I I mean I think those of us who have lived and been around the Northwest for a while vividly remember the spotted owl. Um I was in the in the middle or on the edges, I should say, of a of a very similar conflict over the desert tortoise in the southwest. You know, you mentioned the, the Mount Graham Red red squirrel. There are so many instances like this where unfortunately, uh you know, our what I see as our responsibility to protect other species and other ecosystems gets boiled down to uh this zero-sum fight over, or at least it's perceived as a zero-sum fight over a single species, the survival of a single species versus a group of people's livelihoods. And that has a lot to do with history and a lot to do with how our laws are set up and how our economy is set up, but I hope by telling the story of conservation in this book, I make it clear that it doesn't have to be that way, that conservation doesn't have to be that way. I mean, there are always short-term costs to protecting other species or almost always, you know, it, it takes, it takes planning. It takes foresight to make sure that, uh, you are sharing the habitat appropriately with other species, but if we can figure out a way to distribute those costs more justly, more fairly, those short-term costs and then share the benefits more fairly, make sure that people share in the, also the great long-term benefits of protecting species after all we we need to do it for our own survival, then i think we can get away from these, you know, either or fights that are so painful and really so unresolvable and and create a lot of needless division because i think when you get down to it, if you could give everyone a truth serum <laughs> uh, and, and you could ask people, do you really want a hand in driving that species extinct or Ooh. this species extinct? Most people would say, no, no, you know, this species may be annoying for whatever reason, or I may not agree with how the government is handling it, but... I don't want that, you know, I've lived alongside that species, I don't want it to go extinct. And and I think the conservation movement, I hope is is turning in the direction of trying to figure out, and this is actually happening in a lot of places outside North America, um, trying to figure out how to help people live alongside species and, and not just rely on Uh, national parks and reserves, which are, of course, important, but but that's only part of the conservation picture. We need to
1: figure out how to live alongside these species as well. Right. My guest is Michelle Nyhaus. She's the author of a new book, Beloved Beasts. And um, so, gosh, there's so many, so many things to unpack in this book that are so important. I want to get back to what we just talked about, you know, and and, uh, I mean, there's the idea we all know about encroachment you know the idea that we're moving into these places that used to be wild places and now we're seeing you know uh, the fact that people want to curb the 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 encroachment on their neighborhoods by wildlife you know we see things Mm -hmm. like that (laughs) the the part of southern Arizona we talked about you know this conflict between ranchers and the Sierra Club or the Center for Biological Diversity and and then you go to another continent you go to Africa in the book and you talk about I believe it was in Nam- Namibia um, That's you know right. this is another that that may be something that we don't think about when we talk about battles over like the spotted owl here in Oregon and things like that when you're in Africa in this book you talk about the current uh, or I think it started in the 80s but this idea about how we sort of as colonialists, have taken a certain look at, oh, we've got to reserve these African species. Well, yes, we do. And yet at the same time, there are communities there that are losing their crops to drought or um, things like that, and they're trying to find a way to keep elephants out of their gardens from eating their foods or trampling their crops. How, I wanted to ask Michelle how we reconcile those two things with people needing to survive... in in situations like that, and conserving our species. So let's sort of get back to the general idea of conservation. Can you give us a, a basic breakdown of conservation in the West? Yeah, I mean, I,
2: of course, people have been trying to protect the species they depended on for food and shelter for, you know, since the beginning of human history. But the modern conservation movement, when people realized that they could drive species extinct that they didn't even live alongside, that they could have an effect on species that lived far away, even on other continents, that started about 150 years ago. It's it's really pretty young in the grand scheme of things. You know, we didn't we we for a long time we thought that species were would last forever, no matter what we did. They had been created by God and would always stay the same. Um, when we started in the 1800s, when we started to understand that species did change, that they evolved and we also started to realize we could drive them extinct. And that's when the movement to protect other species, the modern movement to protect other species really got going. So since then we've been uh, we've been learning by trial and error. We've had a lot more successes, I think than many people realize, but uh, we've also taken
1: some wrong turns and hopefully learned something from those mistakes. So, to, who are some notable conservationists that more sh- people should know about? You mentioned a few in the book.
2: Yeah, I mean the book is really built around uh, people who, in my view, stood at some important turning points in this in this long battle, and and they were all connected. You know, this is a tradition. They learn from each other. I think most people have heard the name Rachel Carson. Uh, I, many people may have run into Aldo Leopold who wrote a, a book that's really famous among conservationists called the Sand County Almanac John Muir the founder of the Sierra Club um, and then but I also talk about lesser known figures uh, Rosalie Edge was a was a really um, tough savvy uh, veteran of the suffrage movement actually who who forced the Audubon Society to start getting concerned about hawks and eagles and species they didn't necessarily like in the In the 30s and 40s, Um, and then you know, as you mentioned, I got to do research in Namibia on some um, more recent efforts to do community-based conservation there, and 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 that movement is led by some really fascinating people who who should be better known than they are so my hope is both to to demystify some of the famous names you might have heard and show how they fit into this larger tradition and then to um bring forward some people who have done or, or are doing really interesting important work uh in a in a bit in a, in a quieter way
1: my guest is michelle nyhouse author of a new book beloved beast fighting for life in an age of extinction so tell me about the title fighting for life in an <laughs> age of extinction. What do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. Um, I I really,
2: we are, you know, as many scientists say, we, we are entering or perhaps even in uh, a sixth mass extinction. There have been uh, five others. This one is different because it is caused in large part by our actions, by human actions. Um, so you know these are these are dark times and and there's a lot to be worried about um, not just in conservation but of course you know in, in a lot of different areas of life But I hope I mean I find the perspective of history so helpful in in when we're when we're facing these big crises because we can look back and we can see, okay, you know, people have faced things that probably seemed just as intimidating um, in their time as ours as our challenges do now, and and they kept doing. You know, they. I read about conservationists who worked during the Dust Bowl, who worked during and before World War II, and it must have seemed like the world was about to come apart at the seams. Back then, uh, they didn't know if they would get through it, if humanity would get through it. But they kept doing what they thought was the right thing. They kept fighting for other forms of life, and you know, which really came from. In, in many, many people had had motivations that we would now consider very strange. Uh, some they these were not always uh, not always perfect people, but they they all were united by this real love and appreciation for other kinds of life, and they were on the the side of those species, and they, they fought for them in many different ways. And, and they continue to do that even when times looked very dark. And I think we can learn a lot from that today as we as we do look at
1: some, as we are in the middle of some very real crises. We are. Uh, my guest is uh, Michelle Nyhaus, a science journalist. So one of the things you do talk a lot about in the book, and we touched on in the opening, was this idea of colonialism and conservation. And can you explain to our listeners sort of the the, the tie between those two and, and what it sort of meant for early conservation? Yeah, I mean, conservation. the conservation
2: movement did get started, the modern conservation movement did get started in North America and Europe because that's where a lot of the, that's where industrialization was happening. That's where a lot of damage to other species was happening. Um, and so the people who stepped forward in the movement early on were in general, fairly wealthy people from North America and Europe. And they soon realized that there were a lot of species in other places that were also suffering for various reasons, losing their habitat, being overhunted. And they, they believed it was important to protect those too. And the first steps they took uh, probably inevitably or understandably from their perspective, but, but, which caused a lot of problems later on was to work with colonial governments in places like Africa uh, to establish national parks and reserves. So, so conservation really followed modern conservation movement, really followed colonial paths to continents outside North America and Europe. And, and so they didn't really, modern conservationists early on didn't work with local people who of course had their own, methods of conservation and had for a very long time they they sort of worked with these colonial governments and plunked down national parks which in many cases have have been a a real positive for the habitat and even for local people but in many cases have not have have disrupted people's local livelihoods and and uh and created conflict between uh, humans and other species who you know previously had been living together in relative harmony. So I think the conservation movement in recent years has realized, oh, if we're going to broaden the movement, which we certainly need to do, we need to support people in restoring that relationship between people and other species. We need to, and this is not to say that conservationists should become less ambitious in their goals to save species, but just to be more creative in helping people you know, in North America and elsewhere continue their livelihoods or or help people support making a living um, while also living alongside other species.
1: Well, Michelle, how can they do that? I mean, are there some modern day efforts that are giving you hope about that sort of that sort of fine line? Yeah, there really are, uh, surprisingly.
2: <laughs> and I mean, that was one of the rewards of, of writing this book was to to sort of get below the headlines and realize, oh, you know, there is undeniably so much bad news out there. Um, and, you know, as a member of the media, I know that that we we feel a responsibility to, to report the bad news before the good news sometimes. But there really are so many, you know, large scale, long running pr- examples of people who are... Living alongside wildlife and making a living uh, while doing so, and I mean, one of the most encouraging was a, a program or a, an institution that I got to know in Namibia in southern Africa, which has been going for 30 years and has shifted a lot of lo- a lot of authority over species of many kinds to the local level and and restored that broken relationship that I was talking about between local people who depend still in many ways, depend directly on these species to make a living uh, and, and the species themselves. So I found, you know, that they've had huge successes in controlling poaching, restoring populations of black rhinos, and they've broadened the conservation movement to include subsistence hunters and farmers and people who otherwise, you know, in the days of colonialism might've been quite hostile to, um, you know, something that they saw as like a these ideas that they saw as foreign imports. Um, mm-hmm. They have they have recovered their, their long existing role in conservation. And, and that was so, as someone who's co- covered conservation for a long time and has covered a lot of fights here in North America and beyond, it was so exciting to see uh, a group of people of very different walks of life come together and say, yeah, you know, we want these species to survive. Let's figure out how to do it. Yeah. Um, And we, yes, we need to make a living. And yes, we, you know, we we're not willing to sacrifice our livelihoods um, for, you know, for, for a government policy, but let's work together and figure out how we can do both because we know that's possible.
1: Michelle Nyhouse, author of the new book, Beloved Beasts, I want to get the whole title, Beloved Beast, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Thank you so much. This is a fascinating topic. Uh, I didn't realize um, how complex the issue of conservation is. Uh, so thank you for this book. Hey, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.
0: Thanks to Michelle for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown at just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy.